Hello, and welcome back to Eric Likes Animals Spooky Podcast Edition. I'm your host, Eric Mahan, and I'm here to chat with you guys about some environmental news stories and, of course, animals. So if this is your first time hanging out with me, welcome, and if you're a returning listener, welcome back, and thanks for listening. So like I said, it is still our spooky season, and once again, we are going to have a special spooky episode with this year's twist being Dark Secrets of Animals. So this episode will be our final spooky episode uh, that's coming out during this time period. And why don't we just jump right into it with some environmental news. So first up, we got some sad news. Sorry. And this was reported by The Guardian. And the article title reads, 21 species removed from the U.S. Endangered Species Act after going extinct. So, normally it's very exciting hearing when species are removed from the Endangered Species Act, but in this case, it's for sad reasons, and that is because they are now considered extinct. And the article reads, About 21 species has been removed from the United States Endangered Species Act, or ESA, after going extinct in a move conservationists are calling a wake-up call. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service removed the species, a mix of animals and plants, after determining they had gone extinct according to a press release. Among the species that were delisted, including the Batchman's Warbler, a bright yellow bird common in Florida, South Carolina, and other southern states, eight types of southeastern mussels, and the little marina fruit bat, a small fruit bat found in Guam. Some species initially set for delisting had been spared. A Hawaiian herb will remain after new surveying shows that the new habitats may be suitable for the plant. An ivory-billed woodpecker, once set for delisting, was also kept amid debate of its extinction status. The move to delist the extinct species began in September 2021. The U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Deb Hadland, emphasized the importance of wildlife conservation in a 2021 statement when the initial delisting process was proposed. With climate change and natural area loss pushing more and more species to the brink, now is the time to lift up proactive, collaborative, and innovative efforts to save America's wildlife, Hadland said, highlighting the importance of the ESA. A majority of the species listed were included on the ESA in the 1970s and 1980s. Many species featured were already at extremely low numbers at the time of their listing or possibly extinct entirely. The latest news has raised concern with several wildlife advocacy groups. Lindsay Rosa, vice president of the Conservation Research and Innovation at Defenders of Wildlife, stressed that the permanent consequence of failing to address issues around biodiversity and climate change in a statement shared with The Guardian. Extinction is a very real and permanent consequence of leaving the joint biodiversity and climate crisis unhindered, Rosa said. Rosa added that delisting announcements emphasize the importance of using the ESA to benefit endangered species before it is too late. In a press release, the Center for Biological Diversity laminated the loss of species that can never be brought back. My heart breaks over the loss of these 21 species, said Noah Greenwald, Endangered Species Director for the nonprofit. Few people realize the extent to which the crisis of extinction and climate change are deeply intertwined. Greenwald added, both threaten to undo our very way of life, 
leaving our children with a considerably poorer planet. Yep, <laughs> like I said, this is a pretty sad article, but we can't keep our heads buried in the sand when stories like this comes up, because like a lot of the article says, it's important to hear and learn from it so that we don't continue history. Okay, so I think we soaked in enough negativity from this article. Let's move on to the next. This one was released by Science News and is entitled, Scientists Debunked a Long-Standing Cicada Myth by Analyzing Their Guts. The idea that periodically cicadas don't eat as adults has been put to rest. And the article reads, There are at least three certainties in life. Death, taxes, and the periodic emergence of a million of cicadas. But one big cicada uncertainty has finally been put to rest. The question of whether or not the adult insects eat. Now, these cicadas live in various broods across the eastern United States. Every 13 or 17 years, depending on the brood, adult cicadas emerge from the ground in masses and embark on a four to six week saga of mating and laying eggs on young trees before dying. When the baby cicadas hatch, they fall to the ground, burrow into the earth, and feed on plant roots until they are ready to emerge. But that's long been a popularly accepted idea that once adults emerge, they do not eat. That perception might stem from cicadas' lack of obvious chewing mouth parts, like those processed by very hungry caterpillars, said James Helpler, a research entomologist at the U.S. Arid Land Agriculture Research Center, part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This idea has even perpetrated in some scientific papers, including one published by a USDA scientist in the 1970s, Hepler says. That's despite the fact that other scientists had reported seeing cicadas sticking their tubular mouthpieces into plant stems, possibly to excess sap. We decided to kind of settle it once and for all, he says. While working at the USDA's Appalachian Fruit Research Station in West Virginia, Hepler and colleagues analyzed the gut contents of 75 periodical cicadas collected from Brood X, which emerged in 2021. Since the cicadas were suspected to feed on plant sap, which is mostly water, wouldn't leave much of a trace in their innards. The team used a highly sensitive technique capable of picking up and decoding minuscule amounts of DNA. Far from finding empty stomachs, the researchers identified DNA from 22 kinds of plants, including box elder, ash, oaks, and even cannabis. Given that the cicadas are ingesting very minute quantities of DNA, Hepler says, we were pleasantly surprised that they were able to find DNA in there at all. The results appeared in October 18 Journal of Insect Science. It's really nice that they actually looked at the gut content, said Chris Simon, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Connecticut in Strahls, who works on cicadas but wasn't involved in the study. We see them feeding, she says, but this is verification that they're actually ingesting those particular things. Hepler is now interested in the timescale of adult feeding. Do the cicadas move around from plant to plant on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, he asked. There's also questions of what effects this mass sap sucking has on plants. An individual cicada seems to have a relatively low impact, Hepler says, but when hundreds or thousands of them descend on greenery almost at once, the plants face the potential for pretty significant water loss. Now, you might be thinking it's a weird idea. 
from this amazing article, by the way, that an insect wouldn't be able to eat. But in fact, many insects, when they emerge out of their chrysalis or whatever and are adults, are designed to do only one thing, and that is to breed. So certain moths, for instance, don't even have mouths. For example, luna moths, because they are so ingrained that the only thing they are designed to do is breed that, well, what's the purpose of having a mouth? But in the case of the cicada, they do. Now, on to the final news story. We are jumping back into an article by The Guardian, and the title is Rexlum's 480-Year-Old Sweet Chestnut Crowned Tree of the Year. See, it's a positive article as well. A 480-year-old sweet chestnut that has withstood storms, firewood collectors, and increasingly parties and picnics beneath its boughs has been crowned Tree of the Year. The stately ancient tree in Rexham's Action Park fought off competition from 10 other urban trees in the Woodland Trust competition, which is this year's highlighted city trees, which are widely enjoyed by the public but are often still vulnerable to destruction. Previous winners include the Sycamore Gap Tree in 2016, which was felled last month, as well as the Cumberton Pear in Workershire in 2015 was unfortunately chopped down to make way for the HS2 rail line. Rexlum's much-loved tree has been showering people with sweet chestnuts since the reign of Henry VIII and has survived many challenges, including people plundering the park for firewood in the 1940s and numerous storms, including one in 2021, which blew down neighboring trees. The 24-meter-high tree, which won 17% of the vote, is appeared by many people and celebrated by the local council, which has hosted a party for its month. Hugh Jones, lead member of the Wrexham County Board's Council Environmental and Technical Department, said the council was delighted by this victory. We would like to thank the people of Wrexham and the wider population who took the time to vote, he said. It goes to show that the Wrexham Sweet Chestnut has inspired people for so many years and is now getting so well-deserved recognition. Rob McBride, a tree campaigner who lives nearby, visited a tree last weekend and found it busy with admirers and chestnut collectors, he said. Wrexham had a torrid time since the 1970s with heavy industry closing. This is showing, along with the football, how nature and leisure can reinvigorate a community. After a Surrey U won the competition last year, the Crouch Oak in the same county came second this year with 14% of the vote. It is famed for reputedly having hosted a picnic for Queen Elizabeth I underneath its copious canopy. Another sweet chestnut in Greenwich Park, planted at the request of King Charles II after he took the throne in the 1660s, polled 13% of the vote. Jack Tyler of the Woodland Trust said Wrexham Sweet Chestnut was a worthy winner. The Sweet Chestnut in Wrexham's Action Park is a symbol of resilience in the city, having survived many storms and other threats, he said. This almost 500-year-old giant is celebrated and loved by locals for its beauty and its history and is now the claim of fame of being a Tree of the Year winner, a true icon. The Wrexham Tree will now represent Britain in the European Tree of the Year competition. Way to go, Wrexham Tree. I gotta say, what a fun competition. And who knows, maybe he will win Tree of the Year. And next thing, best global tree. Who knows? Good luck, buddy. And that is your environmental news. Now on to the creature features. So to keep up with the dark secrets of animals, we will be talking about a fish. A tiny little fish found in South America. And this tiny little fish that has a deep dark secret is called 
the Kandaroo. Now the Kandaroo is widely distributed throughout the Amazon River Basin found in Bolivia, Brazil, and of course Peru. They live in shallow, slow-moving, acidic waterways with muddy or sandy bottoms. A lot of the times these fish are found buried in these murky bottoms hiding away. After all, these fish on average are only around 2.5 centimeters or about 1 inch in length. But there are a couple species out there and some have been known to reach about 6 inches or 15 centimeters. Which also brings me up to a point, even though there are a number of species under the kangaroo name, I'll talk about them sort of as one because with all these species out there, they're still not very well known. In fact, in terms of average weight, not much is known, and the same with the lifespan. However, with weight, I am going to go out and say is probably not going to be very much. It's a very small fish after all. And when you look at it, you will notice that there is not much to them. But if you don't have a computer near you, I shall try to describe them the best I can. The kangaroo are a small, thin catfish. They have no scales and their bodies are translucent to really help them blend into their background. Because, well, what better way to camouflage into the background when predators simply see right through you? Now, as for predators, not specifically is known to be a predator of the kangaroo, but most likely any sort of larger predator fish would obviously snack on them if they had the chance. The kangaroo's bodies are narrow and cylindrical with a slightly flattened head. Kangaroos have short backward facing spines on their gill covers, which are very important for their feeding, but we'll come to that in a bit. They also have two large black eyes that are found on top of their head, perfect for spotting potential prey. They also use chemical detection and have lateral lines along their body. These all help them to sense the movement of other animals in the water and help them be able to find the kangaroo's food, even in the murkiest of waters. For you see, these fish are parasites. They are also referred to as the vampire fish or toothpick fish. They feed on the blood of other fish. When a kangaroo locates a host, it will swim towards its host using visual and chemical cues. It will then either force the gills open or wait for them to open naturally of their prey. And once it latches onto the arteries found within the gill of the fish, yeah, there's no ripping it out. I mean, just imagine for a second having a fish literally swim into your lungs because that's sort of what they're doing to these fish by swimming into their gills. Kind of creepy there. Anyway, it will then use those spines I was talking about earlier to latch itself inside the host's gills. And then it also helps aid in releasing the blood from the arteries of the fish to feed. And unlike what is previously theorized, the kangaroo doesn't suck the blood out. It doesn't need to. The host it latched onto's heart does all the work. For the host fish pumps its blood, and the blood pressure simply pumps that blood into the kangaroo's mouth. Now, they are not in the host fish's gills for too long. Fortunately, they have a short feed time of around 30 to 145 seconds. And with that quick feed, they slink back down to the muck of the bottom and hide down below till they get hungry again. After all, the kangaroo is very ever known to kill its host. And many hosts heal quickly after it's all done. 
because it's not a very good strategy to constantly take everything from a potential food source that could maybe be something you revisit later in your life. And as scary as all that sounds, there was once believed to be an even scarier fact about these fish that in more recent years seem to be debunked a little, but there is still the myth and at least doesn't happen very often and seems to be more of an accidental thing than the fish doing it on purpose because they didn't just believe that the fish liked blood, it also liked mucus and would enter into many animals' different orifices to feed and most disturbing stories of all swim up into animals' bladders or urethras. So the stories go, if you as a person went swimming in the Amazon and would pee in the river, not to, because the kangaroo would smell the chemical of the urine and then swim up into the urethra, aka for, well, guys, the penis, and then spray its spines out and lodge itself up there, and it would have to be surgically removed. And though many spots and scientific publications and TV shows still say this, it's still kind of more up in the air whether it's not a myth or scientific fact. For the most part, a lot of people say, well, you know, it's even if the fish smells it, how is a fish going to, well, swim up there when there's this force of pee coming out? And the other idea is that for the most part, when they do accidentally go up there, it is by accident and then they're stuck. So why would the kangaroo purposely enter that area if it's going to get stuck? But accidents happen and that's where a lot of it is coming from, where the smell of pee might be a trigger for them and then they swim up there. After all, another name for this fish is the penis fish. Now, as for breeding, not much is known for this secretive, kind of creepy fish. But the theories are that it can breed multiple times during the breeding season, which they don't know specifically when that occurs, but they have collected several females ripe with ovaries or ready to basically breed during December. They are also thought that they can have around 4 to 15 eggs. Now, how long it takes for them to hatch, grow, sexual maturity and all that? Meh, no one really knows. Yet after all, they are not very big fish and they're clear. And they're living in one of the largest rivers in the world, which is like trying to find a needle in a haystack, which also that needle might also be hiding within a gills of another fish. So very difficult to find. Now, because of all that, when it comes through to their conservation status, out of at least three of the species, one is listed as endangered, one is listed as least concern, and the other one is listed as data deficient, all with population trends unknown by the IUCN red list. So... Yeah, even they're struggling to figure out what is going on with this fish. With no real specifically targeted conservation evaluations or to help maintain current populations really underway. After all, sort of hard to convince people to save a species that there are many stories that they've probably heard about them swimming up into, well, people's penises. Yeah, they're probably not going to save that kind of species. After all, I think you'd have more luck convincing people to save ticks and mosquitoes over a fish like that. However, the threats that are facing the kangaroo are like most fish in the area. Overfishing, for example, for if people keep fishing too much, the kangaroos won't have anything to drink blood from. 
Other issues, of course, are logging that can cause soil erosion and loss of river habitat, mining, which is also habitat loss, and then chemicals leaching into the river and polluting them. Cattle ranching that also causes, once again, habitat loss, and all that cow shit slides down into the river, causing pollution, and of course, climate change. So, what can we do to save them? Penis fish, because they are important animals after all, and they fill a niche in the wildlife. With fishing, for example, regulated fishing, non-fishing zones, and habitat restoration will help bring back many fish populations for the kangaroos to eat. Logging, mining, and cattle farming with more eco or limitations on that sort of stuff can be extremely helpful, like making sure they have a gray space so that they are not building those things right on the river is a big one. As for logging, recycle and better more sustainable resources besides trees like hemp and other resources to be used for log or wood products. Mining, after all, do we really need more gold in our lives? And if you dig a hole, maybe then fix it and fill it in and then plant plants there and not just leave it open and chemicals everywhere. That'd be great too. And then, of course, for cattle farming, you can use other more eco-friendly farming. After all, cattles are one of the most dangerous farming practices for the environment, not because of them farting, which a lot of politicians like to say that's why environmentalists hate cows. They fart too much. No, it's because the amount of water and resources needed to produce a pound of meat from cows compared to any other farming is astronomically more. So, by switching to things like chicken or more sustainable plant farming, along with many other things I listed above, will in fact help save the rivers in the Amazon and in turn help save a very important fish like our good friend the kangaroo, aka the penis fish. And that's the show. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the kangaroo and its dark little secret. As always, make sure to check me out on my social media pages, Facebook, X, aka Twitter, TikTok, YouTube. And of course, if you need to reach out to me, you can always reach me at ericlikesanimals at gmail.com to chit and chat if you want. But for now, that's all I got to say. Thanks once again for listening, and I'll see you all next time.